Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On this radio station and elsewhere over the last few years, we've been hearing a lot more beats, rhymes and life. In venues from Los Angeles to London, we've heard horns, double bass, soaring saxophones. And in rehearsal rooms from Oslo to Tokyo, we've overheard percussion, syncopation and something spiritual. Something never quite to be heard again. Yes, you guessed it, we're finally going to address the triumphant resurgence of jazz. That musical genre that never went away but seems to be front and centre in a bold new live scene across the world and whose sounds and skills are being incorporated across hip-hop, pop, rock, classical, electronica, in fact, everything. Maybe that's exactly the point in this jazz renaissance, that in this era of genre agnosticism, it's just about the music, any kind of music played with skill and soul. I'll be attempting to track the rebirth of all that good stuff and find out where it's taken us to with an expert panel of guests. We'll hear from the director of the recently triumphantly concluded London Jazz Festival, Pelin Opchin, the journalist Amar Kalia, and the British Bahraini trumpet player Yaz Ahmed, whose music blurs the line between jazz and electronic sound design. Let's freestyle. First up on the programme, let's get a sense of the current jazz scene in the city that I call home. And with the London Jazz Festival just having wrapped up here, what better time to take a temperature check of the genre's vibe and popularity with the London Jazz Festival director, Pelin Opchin, and the journalist, Amar Kalia. Amar and Pelin, thank you very much for your time this afternoon, for being on the programme. Pelin, I'm going to kick off with you. We've just uh, you've just closed up another triumphant London Jazz Festival. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a, a window into the world we're exploring today, um, and give us a couple of your sort of quintessential memories from this year's London Jazz Festival. It was our 30th anniversary this year, and we wanted to present a selection showcasing the wonderful artists, the major artists we worked with, the jazz icons, the visionaries, as well as what the future of jazz looks like and how it interacts with the UK jazz scene, which is obviously uh, the hot topic for a few years now. I think for me, the highlights, the quintessential moments is, is to be able to celebrate the lifelong careers of major big icons like Chucho Valdez, having a tribute event for Don Cherry uh, and celebrating his music alongside his family members with Kahila Zabar and Dwight Tribble, but also shedding a different light to the Chicago Chicago jazz scene and how it interacts with the uh, London audiences, uh, London jazz scene in general. So we had an overarching theme of Chicago musicians visiting the festival Thanks, Pelin. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic, and it and it always is every year. Um, Amar, I want to I want to turn to you and and ask. Pelin's obviously on the line, so we want to be polite. But does it feel like the London Jazz Festival is like a UFO landing in a foreign city of London, or does it plug straight into the grassroots scene that's here in London, and of course bringing international talent to some of the wonderful live venues that we have here? Yeah, I mean, I'm not just saying this to flatter Pelin, but it's definitely the latter. Like, it's I think the it's been going for thirty years now. Um, I'm not old enough to have gone to every edition, um, but definitely have been going to like 
every single night of the festival for at least the last sort of about seven years. And I think it's getting better and better at, you know, diversifying venues. So kind of doing shows at in smaller sort of club spaces. I know they've done stuff at Corsica Studios, which is a nightclub uh, in London before. This year they did an event at Printworks, which is a huge club in London. So kind of diversifying spaces and then, yeah, tapping into all sorts of, you know, London jazz music. There was some of the free stage stuff I saw. There was like Emma Rowitz, who I think is only like 21. I think she's still at music school. She's a great young saxophonist and she was playing in the Barbican to like loads of kids and parents and just people wandering in on a Sunday afternoon. And I think that was, that's a kind of a great example of kind of how the jazz festival, you can have someone, you know, like the John Cherry tribute, but then you can also have these young jazz players being given the same stage, kind of only a few hours between themselves, really. So I think it is, I think it's thriving. And every show that I went to was almost sold out or was sold out. So I think it's a real testament to how, much appetite there is as well in London for audiences to come and see this range of improvised music. It's brilliant stuff. I mean, you mentioned there, Emma, the sort of the importance of venues as well. You, you name-checked a couple of venues and a couple of the sorts of venues that perhaps a jazz festival wouldn't normally use, like the Corsica Studios, a club, you know, and things that were a nightclub, different sort of space to a sort of supper club kind of jazz club kind of vibe. I know you've recently written an excellent piece for Mixmag actually about about the sort of diversification of, of venues and stuff in jazz. How much is that part of the scene just take London, for example. How much is listening to live music played by, obviously there might be beats, there might be pre-recorded parts, but essentially this is kind of virtuosic musicianship. How important are the venues and branching out into new types of venues for this? Yeah, I think it's paramount, really. I mean, people forget that jazz music historically is is a form of dance music, so it exists to get people kind of up onto their feet. And I think so much of the London sort of scene that's been established over the last sort of six or seven years has come from being in DIY venues, like the collective Steam Down have been playing in Deptford at the Bunker and are now in the Matchstick Pie House, which is kind of like a space under the railway arches. It's quite sweaty. The reverb's quite bad. I mean, it's like this, it's a, it's a pit basically, but everyone's jumping around and it's kind of, that's the energy, the kind of almost like a mosh pit basically going on, <laughs> which is a bit can seem a bit nuts for jazz, but I think it's really important that you have the spectrum of Ronnie Scott's and sitting down and like having a nice cocktail, but then you can also kind of go for like a fiver and still hear people improvising, blowing on their instruments. Um, yeah, making you dance. I think it's I think it's important we keep those venues alive as well and kind of allow spaces for people to express themselves. Yeah, it's, well, there you are, folks. The Matchstick Pie House in Deptford. I can hear the sound of scratching pens across the globe as people write that down. <laughs> Pellin, on that point about venues, as Amara says, it seems very, very much uh, the, the, the organic scene seeping into some of the more sort of programmed stuff. Have you, you presumably are keeping an eye on all these kind of sweat boxes and mosh pits that Amara is, is referring to and trying to incorporate them into your programme or, or talent spotting acts for, for the jazz festival at these sorts of places? are you absolutely and to that point actually what you've described what's happening in these venues or grassroots collectives or you know spaces creative spaces let's say it's very much true to the origin of jazz jazz has been a social music a people's music it originated from dancing together you know 
having that some sort of a riot together in a way, expressing themselves, you know, with the music. So I think the venue or the setups or the, the you know, these creative spaces bringing these people together is very much true to jazz. And obviously concert halls and other types of jazz clubs are a part of its nature too. But I think London is a is in a very lucky position to have all sorts of you know angles of this spectrum. Uh, for me, where I discover where do I go, I think I'd like to how the venues actually change their identity or uh, you know their reach. For instance, with the Monday jam sessions, the Ori jams at the Color Factory, I think Hackney Wick and its venues are providing that space. And these venues are you know designed to be jazz specific or contemporary or electronic music specific it it does take they do take the character of what is being programmed inside them obviously lots of other clubs like vortex and cafe auto is is a space where i really enjoy hearing music and it's difficult to sort of program in sort of great vibes other than booking great musicians pelin i'm I'm referring to the festival again here it's difficult to program in these wonderful moments of serendipity when people get up and dance people are moved by the music having the bar and having late night programming presumably obviously helps to this but is this what you've been looking to do because the Barbican is a wonderful place full of different sizes of venues and things like that there has been a maybe reputation for some people that maybe don't dig the scene that it is a well-mannered kind of thing that you you know it's more of a church than a club that you know you're kind of sitting in an audience appreciating the fine work that's going on stage more than getting down and dirty have you kind of tried to push the the festival into a more down and dirty a more sort of virtuosic improvisatory kind of good times thing in later years i think there is not not a single answer on how the festival is shaped i think this festival is for london it's the london jazz festival and it cannot just speak to a certain niche or a certain you know way of doing things so we always have uh, the refined way of high quality production concert hall type of settings and we still embrace you know the jazz clubs and the tradition that they carry and we respect and enjoy that a lot and lots of you know great programming is happening around the jazz festival as well not just the shows that we are producing at the core but how the rest of the city is responding to the festival and the music itself is the most important thing isn't it at the end of the day we are there to witness the artists music the art and how what kind of energy develops between the audience and the artists and at the end of the day the location becomes i think fitting to what the experience is and we we try to create these different contrasts so to say and amara as, as pelin says it all flows from the live scene in terms of getting that down on record and getting it out to a, a streaming a downloading a record buying public when did you start to hear in a, a proliferation of sort of what you might call jazz styles in everything from hip hop to pop to rock to classical music to hearing what we've kind of referred to in setting up this show as kind of the resurgence of jazz or its stylings in, in more sort of straightforward pop? But could you put a time on it or is it the wrong question to be asking? And has it always been so in, in your view? I mean, yeah, there's always been a, continu- a continuum of, of British jazz. But I do think there was, for me, it was, I think, 2016. And there's a record, Black Focus, by a duo, Yusuf Kamal, 
which is Yusuf Days on the drums and Kamal Williams on keys. And that was put out by Brownswood, which is the record label, and by Giles Peterson. And that, for me, it was like a mix of, like, jungle break beats, hip-hop swagger, like, intense, frenetic, you know, melodic improvisation, kind of all, all sorts of different stuff. Um, and that seemed to have, like, a real groundswell with it. I know their live shows, they did, like, a small tour that year, and they were, like, pretty raucous. And I think people, that seemed to kind of kick everyone into gear about, OK something's going on. And I think that came at the right time because, I mean, historically, jazz, at least in this country, has been something that people study at higher education in conservatoires, which you obviously have to pay for, and study for, you know, three or four years and maybe do a master's. And there was a kind of like a well-trodden path. But at the same time, there was like grassroots organisations like Tomorrow's Warriors um, in London who were training people for free to doing weekend workshops. So there was like a whole generation of of kids really from London who'd been going to these workshops, you know, from different socioeconomic backgrounds who maybe couldn't afford to go to the conservatoires or who went to the conservatoires, but the workshops gave them the seeds of like an excitement that they could do this work. So they were kind of coming up alongside. And I think they hit just after that Black Focus record. And then you had people like the drummer Moses Boyd, saxophonist Nubaya Garcia, tuba player Theon Cross, kind of all bubbling up. And the scene was just much more diverse, you know, racially and in terms of gender and age. So you suddenly had people kind of incorporating different cultures, really, cultural expressions into their music. And I think that was something that maybe people didn't feel was like a commercial pursuit or they couldn't, they weren't really going to be accepted in this sort of jazz, quote unquote, tradition, putting that out before. So, yeah, I think for me from 2016, kind of onwards was the groundswell of people feeling more comfortable to kind of, I guess, incorporate their roots into a kind of improvisatory language and make this this new hybrid, really. Yeah, and do you hear kind of age-old styles in, in the work that you've referenced there and the artists that you've, re- that you've referenced there, or do you kind of feel a kind of agnosticism to to genres and that if it sounds a bit hip-hop it sounds a bit pop it's more on the classical or traditional jazz kind of angle then that's fine but then tomorrow night we might play a different set and it might be a whole different vibe do you kind of feel that we're in a very fluid state in the London scene and in the British scene but perhaps more internationally as well or, or do you feel that there's very much we've mentioned the Chicago scene a couple of times and perhaps I should ask you to define that but but first of all do you see the the scenes and the styles as being very fluid at the moment yeah definitely I mean the best thing about the thing I love about jazz is that it's such a like undefinable confusing term I mean it's just I guess anything that's improvised so by that merit jazz can be you know I could speak a jazz record by just scatting or whatever you know we could cut together this podcast in an interesting way and call it jazz so that's what's happening in the end Amar so be prepared (laughs) I hope so yeah that'll be good a live performance next year but yeah it's kind of you know any so anything then the fluidity should be a part of the tradition if that makes sense you know I remember interviewing Makai McRaven who Pellin referenced and he said tradition is evolution in jazz so yeah I really think that the fluidity is becoming more and more part of it and I know the artists themselves kind of bristle at sometimes being categorized as like a new jazz scene because I guess what they see they're doing is just expressing themselves through improvisation so there is yeah there are elements of swing which i would categorize i guess as something more traditional people like binker golding's a saxophonist he's got a real 
like straight ahead sound, but then you've got, you know, the whole spectrum kind of all the way through with that Shabaka Hutchings, who's another saxophonist who, yeah, I guess is going far more radical, kind of breaking open the bounds, but they're all contained within that sort of spectrum of, of jazz. Yeah, it's great to have some names for our listeners to, to write down here as well. Pellin, we're talking here about kind of the live, getting the live scene down on record. But I just want to ask you, you, you mentioned the, the Chicago scene a couple of times and entertaining a couple of artists at your London Jazz Festival. Can you define the sound of that Chicago scene for our listeners a little bit? Um, what are the kind of... What are the edges of it? I think I wouldn't want to contradict my agreement of what uh, Amar was saying. It's so undefinable. It's so, you know, pushing boundaries of any genre definition. So maybe there isn't a single definition for, for Chicago, but there is a tradition into future. Like there is a school of musicians in Chicago, which actually defined the avant-garde sound of what we talk about as jazz right now. So obviously the AACM school is an école, let's say, and, and the musicians coming out of that tradition, Art Ensemble of Chicago, Roscoe Mitchell, Sam Rivers. I think these musicians probably didn't wake up one day and said, I want to be a jazz musician. I think these musicians used anything available to them that sort of gave them the tool for improvising, expressing themselves and passing on the torch to the incoming generations. So the current Chicago scene is probably taking their inspiration from that generation of musicians. And I think what is interesting with, with that scene is the closeness to other contemporary music forms, almost, you know, sometimes when you listen to, you know, Anthony Braxton, it doesn't necessarily sound like the jazz piece you may imagine. It kind of evolves into a composed piece where you can think about, oh, is it contemporary classical maybe? I think Chicago is very forward thinking. So New York is something and then LA scene is another one, but Chicago is relatively different with its freedom of expression and improvisation and being slightly closer to the avant-garde. Well, it's uh, fortunate that the the airwaves have uh, have have opened up again for us to be able to get out and about. It sounds like we need to to get some cities under our belt and explore this stuff properly. But Amar, if we were to try to define these scenes in a couple of names, a couple of records, are there a few things that you could recommend that our listeners listen to from from Chicago, New York, and perhaps specifically also from London, as that's what uh, as that's the festival that we've been celebrating as well. Mm, definitely. I mean, Chicago, I'd go for kind of anything released by the label International Anthem. I think they really kind of define what Pelham was talking about, that sort of freeness of the scene right now. We mentioned Mackay McRaven as well, who has released on International Anthem, but I think now he's on XL. But his latest album, In These Times, is incredible. And then, yeah, as Pelham mentioned as well, Robert Gloss was a great place to start in terms of the New York scene. He's got his Black Radio series, which is all about kind of mixing R&B and hip hop with jazz. And one of my re favourite records of all time is his Double Booked album, which I think was in like 2008 or nine, which is kind of half of it's a trio record, uh, which is pretty kind of hard jazz. And then half of it is this sort of more experimental kind of hip hop R&B side. And then in terms of London, there's loads. I mean, I would definitely recommend Black Focus, the Yusuf Kamal album I was talking about. Ezra Collective, I think, are really important in the London scene in terms of 
displaying that sort of mix of diaspora culture with improvisation and their live shows are incredible. They really kind of translate that mosh pit that I was talking about from Steam Down in Deptford to festival stages. So, you know, any of their records are, are really worth checking out. And I really love Binker Golding as well, who I also had mentioned. He's a tenor saxophonist. That is definitely going to be uh, inform our pre-Christmas listening, Amar. Thank you very much uh, for giving us a listening list. It's important stuff. And this is a question to both of you, but Amar, I'll, I'll stick with you. What do, do people need to know anything to love this jazz resurgence? Or do they just need open ears? What do people need to study? I think it's definitely worth following your ear. So, yeah, go in with kind of an open mind if you can. And I think there will be the kind of like DNA of different musics that you might like in these records. So, yeah, if you're a country music fan, maybe start with that Binker Golding record and you'll hear his back catalogue and get into the rest of his stuff. Or if you like hip hop, go for Robert Glasper. So I think follow your gut really with any music. You don't necessarily need to know anything I would say just be open I mean it's a word generally it's a wordless music so it's kind of all about you filling in the blanks with your own kind of emotional response so for me that's always important to kind of sit and listen and and feel. Thank you so much and Pellin I don't know whether you want to add to that I mean do do people the the aficionados or the all the kind of first time visitors to the London Jazz Festival do you feel they need to bring anything with them or do they just as, as Amara is suggesting have an open mind. I think we are encouraging that open mind. And especially, I think jazz has been a word. And that's why maybe the the musicians, the you know, next generation of musicians, the emerging musicians, or even the ones who have already established themselves are avoiding to be pigeonholed under a record label specific genre grouping, therefore avoiding the term jazz, which has traditionally established itself for a certain group of people who only listen to jazz and have a certain way of categorizing, oh, this is jazz or this is not jazz. I think with the festival, we are trying to push, push, challenge that thinking a little bit. Therefore, we are inviting people to come and discover and bring that open mind and all, all, almost see the value of performance and the effort and the artistry on stage and I think having seen them in the live setting is also adding a lot into the experience because it's almost a theatrical way of putting you know bringing that music to life. Pelin Opchin and Amar Kalia there. And now let's turn to the people that make music themselves. Yaz Ahmed is a trumpet player whose mixed British Bahraini heritage influences what's been described as her psychedelic Arabic jazz, intoxicating and compelling music. Yaz, it's wonderful to have you on the programme to get the, the lowdown from an actual wonderful jazz musician. 
I set this up and I asked the guys at the top of the program about this. Am I even asking the right question? You're a musician. For you, did jazz music ever go anywhere? I mean, this is your stock in trade. We're kind of saying it's a resurgence. How do you understand it? Does it seem like there's more of it, more of it about, or more more jazz stylings in in everything from kind of pop to classical? What's what's your take on the on the question itself? Yeah. So for me, jazz has always been around, and there's always been interesting things going back since well the 1950s or beyond. And you know, there's been a strong lineage with people like、um, Django Bates and the Jazz Warriors, and also the Tomorrow's Warriors and Ian Carr. And you know, because of this wonderful legacy. And development in jazz styles, we're seeing, you know, all this wonderful kind of new wave of jazz music, which has taken on this, you know, the education, the、uh, the learnings of these great masters, and mixing it, fusing it with the music that is around them. So, you know, sort of club music or music from people's heritages, and you know. I mean, there's so many different scenes in the UK. There's the free scene, you know. There's the sort of scene that mixes. I hate this term, but world music <laughs> and more dancey scene. Jazz is a global music, so yeah, there are so many different voices, and I think that's what makes it really exciting. And I guess it's often often wordless as well. And as Amar and pointed out at the top of the program. That it's a music that travels really well. You don't have to, you know, don't have to, you know, if if the language is in Arabic, whether it's in English, whatever it might be, that can sometimes be a stumbling block. But when it's mostly wordless, or it's harmonies, or it's you know even scatting or something to kind of you know to to go really trad, then it crosses、mm-hmm. borders really easily, doesn't it? I suppose it's just the groove. It's just liking what you hear. I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I mean, jazz is a music of expression, of storytelling. So and we do this through improvisation, and I think people can really connect to you know those emotions that a、uh, musician is giving out. Yeah, and and you mentioned that, and there's a sort of jazz is famous as a genre for its virtuosity and that amazing improvisation. So to come and see you live, one gig you do one night in France will be different to a gig you do in Holland the next day, right? So people would、mm. really need to flock and see the live experience to get the real. The real deal with jazz music and and with one of、oh, the yeah, audience, for sure. jazz, right? Tell us about about that, about the importance of of live. It's really important, well, to keep music alive,、uh, for one, you know, and it's it's a wonderful experience for the audience and for the musicians because in jazz there's a strong communication between not just the musicians but the audience because you're on a journey together, and like you said, every performance is different because we it's an emotional music and we re- react to our surroundings. But also for me, my highest sales are usually from、um, these live gigs. So people want to go home with something, a memory, and so that's when I sell most of my CDs and my vinyls and. And also, I get to talk to the audience, which is also nice. You know, basically, it's like a fun night out. So, you know, and you it's know. great to be able to meet the artist afterwards and have a CD signed or whatever, or、mm. have a little connection other than the wonderful one that people will have in the audience with you on stage. I mean, it seems. Like a continuation of that ritual, that wonderful musical sacrament, somehow to be able to go,、mm-hmm. and, you know, sh- shake the musician by the hand afterwards.、Yeah. Tell us about your audiences and venues. Then, do, do people need to know anything, or do people just, 
kind of turn up and are curious? I mean, an audience does make a massive difference, obviously. It affects the musicians, you know, how we play and how we uh, communicate, obviously, on stage and with the audience. And, you know, I think I've had, yeah, quite a lot of people who have not known anything about my music and have said to me they were really surprised and they really enjoyed it um, and for those who don't know my music is a mixture of my two heritages so my father is from Bahrain so I fuse the music of Bahrain with jazz and my grandfather Terry Brown he was a jazz trumpet player in the 50s and uh, a record producer as well so yeah when you're coming to see me you're going to see that mixture as well as I use live electronics which is a lot of fun as well. It's great. It's wonderful stuff. You've got some wonderful musical lineage and genes there as well, Yaz, um, by the sound of it, which people can hear in your music. I wanted to ask you before we go about whether the ba- you feel like the boundaries of jazz music are shifting or whether they're already, so, you know, they're goalposts that are so nominal that they're almost like shifting sands. Because it's you've worked with Radiohead, you've worked with Lee Perry, as well as doing slightly more trad stuff in inverted commas, as well as you talking about mm-hmm. all your stuff with electronics and stuff, which, which very much sounds like Lee Scratch Perry's production process and Radiohead's as well, I suppose. Do these things, you're pushing their boundaries. Are they pushing your boundaries as well? And are they pushing the boundaries of, of jazz music generally? Yeah, I mean, yeah, jazz is a very hybrid music, you know, it it could be seen as popular music, it's music of the people. And yeah, it does kind of travel into different areas, you know, like hip hop has always used jazz, you know, for samples, and also from Motown records. And, you know, yeah, you hear jazz and things like Radiohead, you know, where I did some, some simple playing and a bit of improvising. And, you know, and I also work with electronic artists. I work with um, DJ Carlab and, you know, a few electronic producers have remixed my, my, some of my music. So, yeah, it's very um, flexible, I think, jazz. Yeah. And also, while, while I'm here, I'd like to also uh, mention a really special gig coming up that I think audiences will really enjoy. It's very special. Um, it's at the Barbican on the 13th of December, and it's featuring two very inspiring artists. One, Rabi Abu Khalil, who is a Lebanese oud player. And, you know, because of him, I write the music that I write. Um, he inspired me to fuse Arabic music with jazz. And also a wonderful artist called Amel Mathluthi. So this will be a real mix of um, different contemporary Arabic music, you know. Like it. I like it. And it's it's great. Thank you for following in the footsteps of Helen and Amar and giving our audience something to something to listen to and something to book no less as well so Yaz thank you very much And that is it for today's programme. My thanks to Yaz Ahmed, Pelin Opchin and Amar Kalia. Special thanks also to the Oracle, Sally Reeves, for her help with today's show. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chong-Gu. And Steph also edits the show. Big thanks also to Callum McLean for bossing the desks today too. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. 